The Burroughs of Berea is a conversational podcast. We study the Bible and we talk about it. Not all of us are of the same faith, and one of us doesn't actually have a faith. And that's wonderful. We all love one another, and we're going to continue to talk about these things. The things we believe in and the things we believe about what we read in the Bible. Not all of these are necessarily true. Some of it is opinion and speculation. Thank you for listening and speculating with us. There you go. That was good. Yes. Stomps, stomps, stomps. <laughs> you are listening to the Burrows of Berea. Nody no 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 nody no no notes nody no notes from the underground. Welcome back. Uh, this is our kickoff episode for the season of our Notes from the Underground. This is a podcast where we take a microscope to some of Christianity's thornier topics and f- people. Uh, to my right here, we've got, well, wait, I forgot. I'm your host, Tiziana Mom, so hard, subverse. I'm still getting used to being in charge. <laughs> yeah, I find, that, I find that hard to believe, and I don't think it'll last long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Well, anywho— that's funny. Sorry, I just got it. It took me a second. Yeah. <laughs> Tiziana, mom so hard, so verse. I can't do my taglines if I'm introducing How are you, mom so hard? How are my mom so hard How are your today? mom so hard today? Did you do your homework? <laughs> I didn't, actually, Did for this one. No. Yeah. To my right, I've got Rick. I'm rich, <laughs> Welch. Actually, it's Rick the Podfather now. Oh, is it Rick the, the Podfather? My daughter made it for me. Oh, I prefer funny. that. I, like That's I prefer that, Rick the Podfather Welch. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's nice to see you. Nice to see you too. And we've got a, a guest today. We got Pastor Mike Miano from Blue Point uh, Bible Church in Long Island, Long Island, Island. New York. Yeah. Yes, it's a blessing to be here. Oh yeah, we're thrilled to have you. He did a testimony last night that was just fantastic. It was, it was wonderful. So we're really Thank grateful you. that you that you're going to be a part of this podcast today. Well, uh, nope. Who's behind the glass? Oh my great! See what I'm saying? The cat just screwing <laughs> up left and right. Behind the glass, Rocket Man Andy Bishop. Hey, I'm 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 playing with a cat with a yes. string on a stick. You know, I was thinking about that yesterday when we we're in here. So, like, Rick or Ralph, straight out of Compton, one of the Ralph R names, Hicks, right? Ralph is actually from, from Compton. Compton. Yeah. Um, I'm a mom. Um, Sarita the Edge Edgerton. That's her last name. Plus, she's sharp. Yeah, we used but, to call her the Rita. Yeah, she didn't and like then, that one. You know? Yeah, Billy Eye Candy, obvious. Obvious. <laughs> Yeah. So incredibly obvious. obvious. He's so yeah. hot. He's, yeah. he, he's stacked. Yeah. Oh, he's a big he's chunk stacked. of a man. Yeah, man. I know. In the but, good way. But how did Andy get Rocket Man and how did Cherry get the Annihilator? So Andy named Cherry. Okay. He was like, oh, I, didn't, I didn't know that. No, you did. If you go back and listen to it, Andy, what happens is Ralph says, we should call her Cherry Bomb. And he was like, yeah, we're not going to name her that thing. And uh, then Billy said, Cherry, fine. And he goes, no, I think the whole point is we need to give Cherry something different, like the Annihilator. Oh. And so she became the Annihilator because of you. Oh, no kidding. You know, I literally didn't know that. I just thought it was a funny because she's timid, you know, just to, to, to be like, Cherry, the Annihilator, Lewis. And, but and, I guess that's what it was. But yeah, I didn't realize <laughs> the word literally came from me. I honestly don't know why I called him Rocket Man. I just, I, I don't know if Elton John had been on the radio and it's just in my brain. But I was just like... Andy, Rocket Man, Bishop, and he's like, "What?" So great, I know. It's yeah, no, so I know. It is fine. I like it. I like it. <laughs> yeah, I get to make the noise, although sometimes I avoid it. But but if he's in trouble, we call him Andrew Aaron Bishop. Oh <laughs> yeah, yeah. Andrew, get, the get Andrew, the dingy Bishop. I've said that. That's you know, I'll say trouble. Mr. Andrew Aaron Bishop. He'll go, "Ooh, I'm in trouble." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's funny. I like that. Oh. So, Mike, have you listened to any of these notes from the underground? I listened to the Olivet Discourse going through that. Was that the nope, that was a side, that was side study. study? So, the notes from the underground is like a breakdown. The first one was a breakdown of the uh, Olivet Discourse. Actually, it was Olivet Discourse. Oh, that oh, okay. It was a it was like a six point five. We called it because I had all these notes and I just had to go. So that's why. And Andy called it notes from the underground. Mm, um, that's yeah. right. That's right. And Which I, no, I no, still, no, yeah. yeah. Which I still think is hilarious because it's definitely a reference to that uh, Dostoevsky book. Yeah. <laughs> in my head. <laughs> Which makes no sense contextually, but it entertains me to no end. So, yeah. And so what we did was then, um, obviously, uh, what, how did this happen? Oh, Andy invited Tiziana out. Well, I was like, yeah, I just was like, uh, you know who probably, because I don't know why, but recently I'd been talking to Tiziana, you know, and, and I was like, you know who can talk and is in school for divinity? 
Yeah. I was like, probably this is a good fit. Which is what I needed because, guys, it gets like, I, I get exhausted. I love to talk, obviously, and I right. love to listen to myself talk, obviously. But, but there gets moments when I need, I need a break, man. Well, and also, you know, one thing that maybe doesn't get communicated quite so uh, succinctly when we're doing the podcast is the amount of research. There's a lot of work. The amount of time and research. Like looking at this, this my notes for Ruth, I'm in a Word document, like, you know, 12 point single spacing and I've got eight pages right. of notes, you know, multiple books that I, you know, picked up and read. Same with the, the Mary Magdalene, yep. you know, deep dive. Like if you're going to, especially with this particular podcast, Notes from the Underground, we're specifically taking like a complicated issue or a complicated person and like digging in with a fine tooth comb. So that requires a lot of research beyond just reading the text, mm-hmm. you know? And so, yeah, so that's the other part of it. I mean, I think it probably took me, of course, I'm also juggling the kids and of course. In the, you know, trifecta of death, which mm-hmm. is what I've been referring to, the recent COVID outbreak, flu outbreak, and RSV outbreak. Yeah, it's, yeah. Been like it's crazy. Curling towards parents of it's young children at like a breakneck speed. So, you know, between that, you know, I've got the kids at home and I'm trying to study. So, you know, it takes a long time. Yeah, Mike, also, whenever we do this, if you have something that comes to mind, you just have to jump in. Because we will literally, we'll, we'll take up the time. Andy knows how to like, just jump right in the middle. I've been yeah. doing a lot of fart noises with my mouth this morning. I don't know why. But anyway, that's how we jump in. So, fart okay, noises cool. are hilarious. It's not rude. It's yeah, not no, rude it's not in rude. here. You just interrupt us when we have a thought. If you're going to get in word in edgewise, you got to be a little bit rude. Yeah. Which speaking of a word in edgewise, want to jump in? I do. Yeah. So what we're discussing today is the book of Ruth and the character of Ruth. And uh, just to get started, I thought it might be a good idea to, to talk a little bit about the historicity of Ruth, mm-hmm. uh, its composition, when, where, and um, why it was written. And um, because that that plays an important part when we're talking about the historicity of texts and we're digging into their historical relevance. Uh, it's important to know where in the history of a people the book was written. For example... If you were going to write a fictional account about the presidency of Donald Trump and you wrote that book in 1990, you could write the same book in 2023, but you're going to receive them very differently based on the timeline. If you wrote it in 1990, it would have been like an incredible prophetic word, an inspired word. But if you're writing it in 2023, you know, based on your historical knowledge, even if it was a fictional account, it's going to be more of a commentary. Mm -hmm. So that's what we have to look at with the book of Ruth. Um, it's, it was set in the time of the judges, but it doesn't necessarily mean it was written during that time. And we know for sure that it wasn't written during that time because the book ends with the genealogy of King David. Mm-hmm. Well, the book of judges was predates, the period of time of judges predates the monarchy. Right. So it's, it couldn't have been written during the time of judges. It had to have been written during the reign of David mm-hmm. or shortly thereafter. So that's the, the conversation. Um, if it was written, there, there are two possible theories about when the book was written and why. Um, the first one puts the composition between 950 and 700 BCE. And the purpose of writing it at that time would have been to kind of glorify the the dynasty of David in a post-exilic uh, environment. So, mm-hmm. so if you're putting the date there, um, possibly Jerusalem had already been destroyed. No, when, when did already, you say? But You're saying 900 to when? To 700 BCE. That, so the the exile didn't happen until 586 BCE. Oh, wait, no, hold BC. on a second. No, sorry. The north no, at that sorry. point. Sorry. I, the north, See, yeah. this is what I get. 586 BCE and 516 BCE. Sorry. Yeah, okay. So that would have been post-exilic, yeah. Post-exilic, yeah. I know. I, as I was saying that, I was like, no, that's not right. I just read my notes wrong. So in a post-exilic period, so it would have been written between 586 BCE, 516 BCE, written by the Jews living in Babylon at the time. Mm-hmm. And at that point in history, in, in Israel's history, there was a lot of quick document. There was a lot of people writing things down because a lot of stuff had been destroyed. You know, they were trying to preserve their culture and trying to preserve their identity as these sort of like alien residents in Babylon. So there's a lot of like things that got written down. That's when like a lot of the Babylonian Talmud stuff was happening because they were like desperate to try and like suss out their identity because their identity was so inexorably tied to their presence in the land of Israel. Now they're outside of Israel. So they're like, oh, we got to figure out who we are. So it's possible if it was written then that um, it was written as a way to sort of glorify the Davidic dynasty and to remember the height of their success and the height of their um, loving connection to their God Mm -hmm. through David's faithfulness. Right. So that's one theory about when it was written, which is why it would have ended in the monarchy of David. The second theory— and that's the one that would have been between 950 
and 700 BCE. One, the second theory is that it was written by Samuel, the prophet who anointed King David, as a way to sort of justify David's taking over of the throne. Because originally, of course, Saul was anointed the first king of, his, of Israel. And um, generally, your son sort of takes over that role. So Jonathan would have been the next right. king. But it wasn't out of nowhere comes this dark horse candidate, David, because God was already establishing in Israel that it is him who decides who's in charge, not natural law. Right. Foreshadowing of Jesus. Mm-hmm. But um, but so at that time, it would have been Samuel writing it as a way to justify the rise of David as the new, you know, king and sort of quell some of the anxieties and fears that maybe Israel would have been having with this definitely like usurper. There was a war. Saul was murdered. And now this new guy's in, on the throne. That can create a lot of like cultural anxiety. Yeah. You know, I mean, can you imagine? So those are the two possible theories about when the book was written. And again, they sort of, how you perceive the book is going to change a little bit based on when you think it would have been written. Because the general overall theme for Ruth is a a term, chesed, the Hebrew word for like loving kindness. Mm -hmm. And the story itself is, of course, uh, the story between uh, Ruth, this woman who is not of Israel, and Naomi, a woman who is. And it's also just so happens to be her mother-in-law. Not a relationship historically connected with loving kindness. (laughs) 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 <laughs> or right. faithfulness. Yeah. Right? Sure. So it's so so Ruth is is being lifted up as this like grand example, great grand example of loving faithfulness and kindness, this Hebrew word chesed, because of the fact that she dedicated herself to Naomi and had absolutely no reason to do so. Right? That's right. I mean, the right. other ones, it shows that the other ones stayed back, you know, but yeah, Orpa. Yeah, yeah, Orpa. Yeah, and she won. You know, there she was clearly torn, but she eventually made her decision. But I mean, just in general, Sorry, you know, for the wildly ignorant, yeah. what is there? One of them is the mother-in-law of the other. Or yeah, we're going to read the story. Yeah, oh, no, no, no. But just for context yeah. for this intro, because I just don't know. Right, Ruth. The book of Ruth is about a young woman named Ruth who is it's married from Moab. to yeah, he, she, a Moabite who is married to Naomi's son. Okay. So Naomi is the yeah. mother-in-law. Naomi okay. is the mother-in-law. Ruth is the daughter. Yeah, okay. Bethlehem. Yeah. Thank right. You. Yeah. So, um, so as we kind of like dig through the book, and as we kind of like think about it, you know, it, it might just be useful to keep in mind, you know, what exactly it is, you know, wh- how exactly loving faithfulness and 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 um, the how exactly that sort of faithful commitment. Um, what exactly the context of that is. Was it designed to shore up the crumbling faith of a post-exiled people? And the book was written to keep them in mind that the loving faithfulness of God as depicted in the relationship between Ruth and Naomi and how God provides for Naomi through Ruth, is that to sort of bolster their spirits or is it designed to um, sort of justify David's, David's reign because David spent a period of time chilling in Moab before he was king. And it's also possible that the book was written and because there's a consistent and deep um, ref- like framing of Ruth as a Moabite. That never changes throughout the book. Nope. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. If I might say, well, one other picture that I see coming through the book is the prophetic that it's speaking to the uh, bringing in of the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. But they couldn't have possibly known that at the time. I guess from the inspired perspective, God's wisdom, yeah. he's prophetically pointing to the fact that what I love is where Ruth says, he shall be my God. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So pointing to the Gentiles becoming the people of God as well. The hope of the nations was for Israel, yes, but also for Israel to be the light to the nations around them. Exactly. So we have those two concepts when it comes to looking at, you know, the Bible and it's we have the historical implication and the modern day application. That's what my pastor Joseph Hackett always says. And so that is like the more modern day application and the the inclusion of the Gentiles in the story. Um, you know, at the time, if it was written by Samuel too, because David is it, it's a glorification of David's line and also from Bethlehem and 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 designed to um show God's favor of this family line over the family line of Saul. 
But that family line clearly was favored by God because it was the line that eventually produced Jesus Christ. Yeah, so Could it Samuel possibly have known? You in know? the tribe, within the tribe of Benjamin, where Saul was mm-hmm. at, then this is switching to the tribe of Judah. That's right. It's and, a massive switch here. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. but but that also the it's it that's also the the line of David is you know and when we get into the story itself. That's also where Naomi and her husband are. They're all from the tribe of Judah because you have, um, you know, Perez and Tamar, part of that genealogy and all this other stuff. So it's it's either way you look at it, it's it's interesting, just interesting to me what concept of faithfulness is being propped up here in the story and how does it participate as we go down the line. I personally am kind of more of a fan of the concept of Samuel writing the story as a way to justify David's taking over of the throne. And again, the anointing passing from the tribe of Benjamin to the tribe of Judah, just because of my own belief in Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so I, I tend to prefer that storyline versus it being, you know, a way to make sure that the identity of of the Israelites was solidified and reinforced and reaffirmed even while they were in exile. That's mm-hmm. just me. But, you know, it's important to know there's a possible— Either possible interpretation. We don't know which one it is, but you know it's important to remember because some people might prefer the uh, the post-exilic theory. Yeah, that the story was written or recorded at that time to sort of like remind these people of who they were and don't lose sight of your identity, even though we're in this foreign land. I mean, take take whichever one matters to your spirit because it's not a salvation issue, but you have a choice. Yeah, I mean, I think that, and I'm more of a modern person. I like I, I might be leaning. Sort of where you were, Mike, with that, you know, thinking because I'm I'm looking at is in where it fits uh, in the whole, mm-hmm. you know, and so mm-hmm. of course it's easy for us on the opposite side of this, you know, we have Christ and we understand it, but just to to be able to look at the genealogy of the most holy man that ever lived and to see a mm-hmm. Gentile woman in it, not just More, a Gentile, y'all, a Moabite, a Moabite. That's a, let's get it. Let's start yeah, yeah, speaking yeah. of. I, I'm just saying I'm coming from a modern perspective, but that's exactly and again. That's why I like that read too. Yep. I like the idea. And plus, that's something that we know from previous podcasts we were talking about. You know, when the monarchy was established, Israel Israel went from sort of this loosely confederated band of people to having a more consolidated centralized government. What that also often means is the rise of a bureaucratic class, because when you have a centralized government being supported by taxes and being supported by extra food and this and that, that's how you can have an army. That's how you can have, you know, bureaucrats. That's how you can have religious prophets and scholars because there's all of a sudden when you have a, um, instead of people that are kind of farting around hunter-gatherer, they're confederated, they're working together, they are they are farming the land, they are producing a surplus, then with that surplus, you can support people that aren't working the land, like like an army. Like, Civilization, like, baby. Right, like prophets, like people that have the resources to like go to school and learn how to read and write and write this stuff down. And we saw a huge... Um, you know, we saw a burst of that. That's why we have more collections of writings and more knowledge of that period of time than we do say the beginning of the the the. the we only have one book, Joshua, right? Of like the taking over of the land. Yeah. But then we've got tons of books about then what happened during the monarchy because they had the financial resources to provide a bureaucratic and a priestly class that could dedicate their time and energy to documenting these things, writing these things down, keeping track of things. Isaiah had a whole school of people, Mm -hmm. you know, because there was the financial resources within the monarchy to support that. So it's also possible. So so that's another reason why that theory sort of sits well with me is because Samuel would have been within that uh, monarchical period, also within that period of time where there was um, a creative flourishing in Israel because people had the resources to devote their whole life to being a prophet or Mm -hmm. to being a a scribe or to being a person who worked and lived around the castle, keeping track of the library and whatnot. There yeah, wasn't no library before that. And there there wasn't nobody, mean, you know, there wasn't no library to take care of. But you bring a great, you bring up a really good point because you have, within the book of Ruth, you're learning about Jesse and Obed and, you know, and of course the lineage of David. And that's, a, it's critical to the, to the Hebrew people to understand what the line of David is. Mm-hmm. That's why it made the cut for the canon. It mm-hmm. made it. You know, there were other books that were written that didn't make the cut. That one did. 
isn't that interesting? It always fascinates me how God worked that out, mm-hmm. you know, because like, because Ruth, by all accounts, is kind of like an odd duck. Yep. You know, it's this pastoral romance novel kind of crammed into this, in the middle of his like history and prophetic writings. And all of a sudden you got the book of Ruth. It's just this gorgeous, sweet little you know, like romance vignette. It feels to me like a, and and we're going to get into it. Ruth always reminds me of, I know this kind of sounds silly, but kind of like the Exodus. When, whenever you hear at the end of Genesis that the people, uh, the tribe of Israel, you know, had to go because of the famine, they had to leave and they mm-hmm. had to go down to Egypt, mm-hmm. which is where the food was. And Joseph was placed there by God's providence to be a leader and to mm-hmm. help his family. So there they are. And then the Exodus is taking them out of that and going back home. And that's really what we're seeing in Ruth is that they're in the house of bread. They're in Bethlehem. This is going to be, you know, this is the place. This is where David's from. This is where the Christ is going to be from. Like it's Bethlehem and there's a famine. Yeah. Well, so so let's let's dive in. Let's read the first part of Ruth and then we can start talking. Um, who who has their Bible out? This person over here speaking of, I forgot my Bible like an absolute noob. <laughs> Like a total amateur. Mike could read it. He's got yeah, a, yeah. he's got that voice. He's got that silk. That hey everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what would you like me to read? Let's read. Let's read the first uh, three verses. Okay. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons, and the name of the man was Elam. Elimelech. Elimelech. Elimelech, yeah. Elimelech. 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 It's not a name you say often, you know? (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. And the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion, Epathrites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and they remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. Yeah. What version are you reading from? NASB. Okay, I'm going to get it. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. So this is another thing when it comes to like the 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 historicity of the of the account and whether or not it's literal or allegorical. Historicity. How does that differ differ from just saying historical? Or is it just it's, kind of a little more precise? It's maybe a little more precise because it has to do with how the the particular piece of art or the thing that we're looking at specifically sits within history as a thing. So historical okay. is like you so know it's the about grand theme. It's, it's about this it's about particular. How it, yeah, specifically how it, how it works in. in context, not just what yeah, it says. Yeah, how they okay. how they interact. Okay, yeah, cool. Um, what's really, I just, I did a little bit of side research too, because there's also some debate about his, his historical authenticity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a combination. That's okay. what it means. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. The you Googles. Uh, so, you know, again, going back to who wrote the story and why they wrote it and is it 100% historically accurate or is it sort of, um, you know, allegorical in some ways. And uh, when we look at the first part here, so we look at the names, um, Elimelech is my God is king. So again, the story is set in the time of the judges, which have been pre-monarchical. So it's interesting that the name of this character is king and it's the lineage of David that we're discussing. That's, it's almost like, is that really a coincidence? Well, in the time of judges, doesn't say everyone was doing right, what was right in their own eyes. Right. So So they're they're living in that time. Right, right. Exactly. Uh, It was like, it was the Thunderdome up in there. Yeah. <laughs> and Beyond so then, Thunderdome. And same with these guys, uh, Malhone and Chilean. Their names mean sickness and they mean spent. Hmm. Who the F names their kids that? Sickness Naomi. and spent. Who names their kids <laughs> sickness and spent? Yeah, right? But what does like, Naomi mean? Well, Naomi changes her name. Right. But what does her name mean? Well, Naomi means, um, what is it? Yeah. It means like blessed one. Versus Mara, which means bitterness. Bitterness, that's right. So she changes her name, right? So so, so Naomi mean, but she changes her name in order to fall in line with the story. You're telling me that she gave birth to two kids when everything was fine and they were living in Bethlehem, and she decided to name them Sickness and Spent. Yeah. That's just that's a little That should tell you what's happening. Sus, as Actually, they say. it tells you a lot of times. It's yeah. telling you what's going on in Bethlehem. Yeah, well, that's why they're leaving. Yeah, exactly. But and that's the other thing we don't know when because let's read uh, let's read verse verse four and five. So, Mike, you want to go ahead? Sure. And they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. 
and they lived there about 10 years. Then both Mahlon and Kilian also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. So... We're going to have to rent him. That verse right there... I know. We're going to have to what? Rent him. Oh, I know. He's going to be a Bible reader. Perfect voice. I know. So, what's... So, they took for themselves Moabite women. First and foremost, that is not how... Israelite men got their wives. Their wives were chosen for them by their parents. Mm -hmm. And even, even in when we were doing our side study on, on Samson and Delilah, when Samson saw that his first wife and was into her, what did he do? He didn't take her for himself. He went to his parents and said, go get that one. That's right. So we're already finding ourselves in a, conundrum and in a very and in a very unusual period of time in the history of Israel. And again, I think it's reflective of this time of the judges where it was sort of like the Thunderdome. And it also suggests that there that Elimelech died before he could do that thing, before he could give them the the wives that they needed. Mm-hmm. But it says that they were there for about 10 years. So and if these men were of marrying age after their dad died, they they probably were raised in Bethlehem. They mm-hmm. spent some time there. So they should have known um, that one of the number one things God does not down with is marrying Moabite women. Right. Really marrying anyone outside of their family. Yeah. Yeah, out of their, yeah. It, it can be cross tribes. Yeah. But only within their tribes. But let's, so let's, let's pause for just a second and let's do a little bit of a breakdown on the Moabites and who they are. Okay. So Moab is a country that's located on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, so it's directly across from the kingdom of Judah. Mm-hmm. So specifically Judah of the tribes had this kind of like border along with, with Moab. So it's tucked between Edom, which is in the south, and then Amnon to the north. Then Moab is kind of right in the middle, and it shares this border uh, across the Dead Sea from, from Judah. Um, there's some archaeological evidence that attests to their culture and history outside of what we read in the Bible. Uh, most notably, there is a Misha stela, which is dated from around 840 BCE. And again, just a refresher, stelas are giant stone tablets mm-hmm. that they used to write important things on. And when we find a stela, it's um, good archaeological evidence that attests to the culture at the time that the stela was written. So when we find stelas that that support archaeological evidence that supports the presence of Israel or like some of the people talked about in the Bible, it's, it's a wonderful sort of— um, affirmation and and reaffirms the historicity, which the, the historical accuracy of of these texts. So there is this Misha Stila. Um, the Ten Commandments, for example, would have been on Stila's. Um, so the story that's inscribed on the Stila, the Misha Stila, is more or less um, mirrors some events described in Second Kings. So this particular stela mentions the Moabites and how they did these kinds of things and blah, blah, blah. And, and the story that we have on the Misha stela mirrors the story of Second Kings, mm-hmm. which is where like Judah and Edom go up to fight Moab and then they ask Elisha to come help out, you know, and they, that's that story. Uh-huh. And so the fact that Moab is mentioned there in that stela attests to the fact that these guys actually exist and the, they're not just like some made up characters in the Bible so that... Judah has something to fight against. Right? Well, if you go back to Genesis 19, um, this is whenever Lot is with Abraham. And if you remember, he's now in Sodom mm-hmm. and Gomorrah. Are, yeah. you, are you going to get into that? I am, I'm yeah. not going to jump into that. No, it, but that's what's You were next. just talking about who yeah, this no. person is real. Yeah, so yeah, so, so yeah, it was just kind of like, when, when, when just, just to be, because what we're going to jump into with the Genesis story, that's sort of Israel's version of Moab. And yeah. so we're going to have to remember that people do have cultural biases, but even outside of Israel's conversation. Are you saying that the Israelites have a cultural bias? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> Anything outside of an Israelite is a dog. Yeah. So it's, but, but what I'm saying is so like, so again, the story in Second Kings. Like when Moab's fighting and they bring up Elijah and like the king of Moab offers up his firstborn son and it's this whole gross thing. And then actually, interestingly enough, the Moabites still kind of whoop Israel's butt. Mm. The Bible stops there. The Bible didn't get into that story. Yeah. This Misha Stila does. Uh. So it's so it's cultural evidence that the Moabites did have their own culture and they were documenting their own history, their version of who they are, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it's it's usually, it's like a lot more detailed you know, about, you know, them being 
victorious because it's from their perspective and point of view. So we do know that the Moabites existed and we can trust that they had some pretty regular beef with Israel because mm -hmm. even they talked about their beef. For something to be important enough to be inscribed in stone like yeah, that. Yeah, this wasn't just paper. This yeah. was, yeah, so, this took a minute. Right, this, this took a minute, okay? <laughs> so, so, so Moab's beef with Israel was as significant to Moab as Israel's beef with Moab was to Israel. Does right. that make sense? Yeah, of course. Everybody got beef and everybody know about it and everybody writing down about it, mm -hmm. okay? So now we jump into when we first meet Moab and we first meet the Moabites, and Israel's version of who they are and where they came from, because that happens way back in Genesis. Go ahead and pick it up, sir. So do you want, do you want me to just read oh, where yeah. we hear it? So 19, Genesis 36, 19, 36. So yeah. thus were both the daughters of Lot. So if you know the relationship between Lot and Abraham, it's going to make sense. With child uh, by their father. And the firstborn bare a son and called his name Moab. The same as the father of the Moabites unto this day. And the younger... She also bare a son and called his name Ben-Ami, or Ben-Ami, I don't know how to say it, the same as the father of the children of Ammon unto this day. Yeah. So is that true? Is that historically accurate, you know, that, that the entire nation of people is born out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter? Or is that just sort of Israel's way of... Saying they're... Talking <laughs> <laughs> You know, I don't know, because we don't know, but... Israel is acknowledging that there is a familial bond between them and Moab, mm -hmm. but they're doing so in the way that you would that sort of like piece of shit uncle that lives in a van down by the river. Yes. That's what they're doing. Yeah. Because there is this, they do have sort of a, of a bond. A lot of these ancient cultures that were like living in Levant at that period of time, they did. They intermarried even though they weren't supposed to, but they did. So they had these kind of cross-cultural ties. So this is Israel's way of sort of like begrudgingly acknowledging we have some we have some kind of blood with these people, but they're gross mm -hmm. and ew. Yeah. That's that's what they're doing with that whole story. The relationship was with God and Abraham. Yeah. And Lot and Abraham. Abraham loved Lot. Abraham went to a lot of risk to try to save his nephew. He loved him. And uh, they are his people, but they uh, there was always going to be some strife between Abraham and Lot. And, you know, whenever all of the men, you remember yeah. the story, but they were having oh, yeah. problems. And so he says, well, look at what you want, you know? And so there goes Lot. He leaves, he goes Go to Sodom and the Lord. But the <laughs> whole point, exactly. And Abraham is like, oh man, like they're in trouble. And so Abraham goes to lengths to save, you know, them. And he does. But yeah. the reality is, is that the relationship, like we talked about in here, Andy, Abraham and God, they had this unique relationship. And that's what the Israelites want you to know, is yeah. that he is a special case. They also have a particular reason for making Moab and Edom look the way that they did yeah. with this beginning. And that, and that, that, so both acknowledging that there's relationship, but also saying they suck. The reason that Israel would want to like record it that way is because of a very specific incident that happened in Numbers whenever Moses and the Israelites first are expelled from Egypt and are making their journey into the promised land. Uh, and this is, comes from Numbers. So there's this period of time where they ask for, Israel asks for passage through the land. And Moses refers to them, this is in Numbers 20, 14. Yep. Numbers ref Moses refers to them as brothers and says, let us pass through your land on our way to where we're going. And they were like, no, we're not going to help you. And so Moses himself said, we're brothers. Again, acknowledging there's a familial bond because of Lot, but because they didn't let him pass through. Yeah, so let's look, we can look it up. It's Numbers 2014. Okay. You want me to read yeah. it? Yeah. And Moses sent messengers from Kadesh unto the king of Edom. Thus saith thy brother Israel, thou knowest all the travail that hath befallen us, how our fathers went down into Egypt, and we have dwelt in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians vexed us and our fathers. And when we cried unto the Lord, he heard our voice, and sent an angel, and hath brought us forth out of Egypt. And behold, we are in Kadesh, a city in the uttermost of thy border. Let us pass, I pray thee, through thy country. We will not pass through the fields or through the vineyards. Neither will we drink of the water of the wells, and we will go by the king's highway. We will not turn to the right hand nor to the left until we have passed thy borders. And Eden said unto him, Thou shalt not pass by me. Right. Lest I come out against thee with the sword. Right. 
Yeah. So then they go to the king of the Amorites, who's also like, no soup for you. <laughs> no soup for yeah. you. <laughs> and then they get into this big brawl and Israel wins. And when Israel wins, then they take over the land of the Amorites, which is what puts them in direct conflict with Moab. So what's going on there is, hey, let us pass through. We're not going to do anything wrong. We're not going to touch your fields. We're not going to do anything. Yeah. Just help us out. And they're like, no. So he was like, all right, well, we'll just take all the things that you have. <laughs> yeah, right. So we, yeah, so he goes to the Amorites next and they say the same thing. And yep. so then they're just like, all right, bruh, now you're going to get it. So they get in a big fight. When, <laughs> when they take over that land, that's what puts them in conflict with Moab because they share that border. Yep. And that is when we find the whole story of the king of Moab hiring um, Balaam, son of Beor, to come and curse the, the Israelites. That's where all that comes into play. And 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 we actually have stelas that attest to Balaam, son of. B- There's other archaeological evidences that that describe the same kind of guy, and then he he was basically just a prophet for hire. He was like, a Gentile prophet. Yeah, and he could, and he spoke for. He was a conduit for multiple gods, mm-hmm. and so the fact that he was already constructed to be that conduit. Fascinating. So, by the so way. yeah, so the fact that um, Hashem was just like, excuse me, get out, get out the way, y'all. Let me let me let me show you who's in charge here. You know what I mean? Because he'd been hired and given money to become this conduit to offer this curse, and all he could do was bless Israel. Bro, so, that ass tried to save him. Hey, <laughs> it listen, did. I know it many. Tried. I know many a man been saved by some ass. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did you not know you have a pastor in here? You know what? <laughs> oh, he's 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 laughing. He's just not one of those out. He's not one of those loud laughers. He's over right. there. He's been in the clink. None Sometimes of this is new to our, him. That's right. That's right. <laughs> oh, geez. The humor, uh, we, sometimes it gets us in trouble. Yeah. Well, and also, I'm, you know, I'm particularly upset. Because, not upset, but like I feel enormous amount of responsibility now that I know we have 12-year-olds listening. Oh, I know. That I have to. But, but I'm like, I'm old, man. Just so you understand 12-year-olds, there's been a lot of people saved by that. <laughs> In this case, when a, a man <laughs> loves a woman, right? Like, yeah. I, I mean, he puts warnings. To be fair, yeah. Rick does put warnings on. Yeah, we have explicit content. Yeah, we have explicit yeah. content. In all reality, guys, we we're just talking about a donkey that actually God <laughs> opened his mouth and he saved a man. He he was saving a man's life, and that's all we're trying to do for you. So, yeah. just don't listen to our humor. So we have this relationship between Moab. And, and Edom and the Ammonites and the Israelites, right? We have all this conflict, um, which is what then leads up to Deuteronomy yep. 23.3. Mm-hmm. I have that written down, but- You want to go ahead and read you it? You want to read it? So Deuteronomy 23.3, and again, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, right? So, so Moses is leading through the, the wilderness and he's trying to figure out how to get through. All these people are like, no, you know, Get out of here. Another fart noise. Fights ensue. Territory is taken. Animosities arise. So when Moses is going to, Moses is dying, he's passing on the mantle of responsibility to Joshua. And this is what is said in Deuteronomy 23.3. No Ammonite or Moabite shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of their descendants shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord because they did not meet you with food and water on your journey out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, son of Beor from Pithor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Yeah. The time of the judges was not 10 generations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what's happening? Interesting. It's, it's, it's special. We talk, We there's always that moment there's, of special. There's always, this is the rule, except if you break it in this particular way, right? God can break it. it right. So, But the people can't. Right. Mm, it's very, very interesting. You know what we're talking about, Mike? There's not 10 generations from the time that we're speaking until the time of Ruth. But you heard what they just said, you won't be accepted into the assembly of the Lord. So you're getting ready to hear a story where it's quite the opposite of that. Yeah, So so here we have... We have Elimelech and we have Naomi and we have the two sons whose names, Malchon and Chilion, right? They are part of an ethnic identity that has historical beef with the Moabites and whose religious affiliation is so uh, against the Moabites that the laws of their God state for 10 generations, you are not to intermarry with these people. They're not to be admitted to the assembly of the Lord for 10 generations now. Have you double-checked the generations just to be sure? Well, we don't know because we don't know exactly within the period of time of the judges. Well, that- I'm just, but we have the genealogies. 
We do the genealogies, and I don't even think it was full 10 generations. Yeah. Well, why don't I check on that while you're still talking? Yeah, go ahead and check on that while we're yeah. talking. But, like, you know, it was just—it's just some random, like, in the time of the judges. And so the theory being—I mean, 10 generations is a long time. If you think of a generation, generation at that time was 40 years. So 40 times 10 is 400. Yeah. Well, conceivably 20 still. But So at yeah. the least 20. What's 20 by— 10. Yeah. That's well, a dead minimum. Right? They say they say that the 40 is based on It's it a biblical took, generation is 40. Yeah, because they'd wandered through the desert for 40 years until that entire generation, quote unquote, had died out and then oh, the next okay. generation was able to take it over. All right. So when we hear generation in the Bible, we often tend to assume it's a shorthand for 40 years. So whenever Jesus said this generation shall not pass away, was it 40 years or 2000? Okay, I'm backing off. Back to you. Right. <laughs> Sneak that perterism in anywhere you can. Just I'll just what? stick it right in there, pal. Just any time, any kind of crap. <laughs> anyway, yeah. sorry. But no, that's what I'm saying. So generally we say 40 years. So I don't think it was 400 years between the time that Joshua and the Israelites entered in and the establishment of the of the, the monarchy under Saul. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was. Okay. But you know what? What I think doesn't matter. That's why we go to the text. That's true. But even so, 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 so first of all, Deuteronomy is like, don't, not even to the 10th generation, but then when God tells them to go up and take the land, it says very specifically, and do not marry any of these people. Do not do it. Do not, do not give your sons, do not, take, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons, and do not take their daughters in marriage to yourself, which is why way off base and way later, Ezra, when they're reestablishing the temple after the exile's over, at the end of Ezra makes all these Israelites put away all their foreign wives and all their children, which is an effed up thing to do in my personal opinion. Because hmm. those, ch- those children and those women didn't have anything to do with it. So there's also some people kind of theorizing that this story and Ruth's Moabite identity is so hammered home because it's in um, a critique of Ezra doing that. Because yes, God said, don't marry, but then here you have lots of opportunities where people married in do the right thing. It's it's complicated. Yeah, I think there's a that's one of the conundrums I have is that earlier in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 4, uh, God tells them that the reason I gave you the laws and statutes is so that you would be a light to the nations around you and you would cause them to look to me and say, you know, what God has uh, loved people so much that he would cause himself to be so near to his people. So I see that. And then as I read through the book of Judges, the, the theme that I constantly pick up is these people began to do what was right in their own eyes. Mm. So as you said before, where God can you know, do what he wants to do. What he's trying to teach his people is you're not going to do it your way. Mm-hmm. You know, he does want to affect the nations around them. Mm-hmm. However, it's not going to be by you going over there and picking your wives and deciding to violate the covenant. And I know I'm not the only one that's frustrated every time I read these stories where it's God told them not to make covenants with these people, not to get married into these families. But again, we see this sort of uh, other picture where he did want to have an effect and mm-hmm. at this point, again, I think there's a maturity story happening here where he's saying, listen, you're a child. You know, I need you to listen and I need you to understand why I gave you this covenant and you will affect the nations around you. Here you see they're sort of jumping the gun and they're going and doing things their own way mm-hmm. and trying to affect the nations around them. I like how you said maturity story because that, that's kind of like what Andy and I went through in our conversation was about how Israel is learning about God. It's a maturing. They're actually maturing through time about I, who the God is. I find the that, yeah, is. a fascinating way to look at that story. I do. And the Bible actually says it within itself, you know, that like he said, using the word maturing or you're growing. Like we talk about Jesus growing in wisdom and stature. Like this is what's happening, you know, and this story in Ruth is doing the same thing, you know. Sorry to interrupt you. So just go right back to where you were, but. No, that's where I'm at. Go ahead. No, that's, I was just saying that they're. Yeah you're learning a lot about who the Moabites were mm-hmm. in relationship to this people that's maturing in God. And you you see the, uh, you know, the havoc that comes from these relationships that they create, you know, with themselves, you know, with these other nations and the things that they do. But God always has a way of bringing it back to him. Like he always, there's always, it's a, even if it's one. Yeah. And it could be a little Moabite girl. Ah. Uh. No. Wasn't that romantic? It was. <laughs> but that's all go back to like my personal the 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 lens that I read the Bible through, which is as a woman. And mm-hmm. whenever I see God going out of his way to care for women who are historically 
so vulnerable, especially in this period of time, you know, and that's the way we talk about like whenever God gives, whenever God gives a, ba- a barren woman a baby, which happens all of the time. Yes. All of the most important men are born from these barren women. It's because it's, a, it's the men are just being born of a, bo- of a barren woman is meant to, it's meant to invoke the utter hopelessness of a woman who was barren mm-hmm. because she would have no one to care for her in old age. And this is like before health insurance. Yeah. Okay. This is before modern medicine. Yeah. This is when if you had a sore tooth, you just yanked it out. Yeah, like we talked about, you know, yeah. with the sun. If you don't have if the sun, what are you going to live sun, with? If you don't have a son, you What's... are guaranteed a, a, a terrible old age yes. that is rife with starving and cold. And so, or moving into sex work or whatever it right, takes to survive. Sex work, exactly. Yeah. And so, when God gives a barren woman a baby, it is meant to invoke the utter hopelessness. And then how deeply you feel when God rescues you, when that is your level of hopelessness. Yeah, and I don't mean to take us off course, but it's like whenever Jesus reached his hand over onto the widow of Nain's son and touched her. Mm -hmm. Because she was the widow of Nain and only had one son and he was dead. Uh, He touched the son and healed that whole family Mm -hmm. just by doing that one act. It's amazing. God always finds a way. Yeah, so so, so again, we have have Ruth, you know, the story of this woman. So, all right. I think we're good. I think we've sussed out her nature because that's the, like I'm, you know I'm, this is I'm new I'm new here yeah okay? I'm new here so I keep like looking back to my notes too and then you've like been here getting, months you've been here months you're not new anymore I I know I'm not well but this is still this is a complicated Bible study and so I'm I'm is that a good place to end your first part or yeah let's because now we're gonna jump into chapter two because that's that's essentially the end of chapter one right we we both of or. No, it's not. What am I talking about? No, we're nowhere near we're the We're nowhere end of near it. the end of chapter one. That's 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 the the end of the sorry, the introduction. Yeah. You know, to the whole story itself and like what's gonna happen now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so maybe that's a good place to end and I can, you know, spend some more time, maybe prep a little more before our next one. What was that <laughs> Instead joke? Instead of scrambling to get two kids in the car to daycare there, before I get all the way down here. <laughs> there was a you joke, know? there was a joke that um uh what would Boaz have been if he'd never been married? Oh, you told me this. It was Cherry that told us that. Ruthless. Just giving that last little bit of conversation, just a, a push for, tell people to go listen to the notes from the underground, uh, Mary, mm. uh, because it talks, we talk a lot about like that, the thing about women in that time and oh, stuff. Yeah. And it was a fascinating talk too. So if you haven't heard that one, just go back. Yeah. Mary Magdalene studying. Very good stuff. All right, folks. Yeah, well, let's call it. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. And we'll see you next time on the Burrows of Berea. Yeah. Peace out. Woo. Cool. Hey, guys. This is Rick from the Burrows of Berea. Do you know how much blood, sweat, and tears it takes to make a podcast? None. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't cost a lot. And so if you guys don't mind, if anybody would like to give to help us with these episodes, it would be great. We'll put out even more content. And if you go to our Patreon page, just search for the Burrows of Berea. You'll get extra notes, extra episodes, and it's pretty much free. A dollar gets you a lot. Thanks, guys. Andy? Yeah? My human is crying. Okay. Let me... Sorry. You can pause it. Yeah. Do you want to? Do you want to bring her in here? You can put her in the couch. In no, here if she's you want. just her passy fell out. She okay. was in the middle of falling asleep. So, let me go put the pacifier back in my human's mouth. <laughs> my humans. I'm gonna borrow that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you'll have your. You'll have your, a very own fresh one. That's too. right. Yeah. <laughs> a very fresh human. A very fresh human. On Instagram, they have the uh, these memes where it's. Um, you know, I made these humans and they usually have like a, a funny video of the kids running around being crazy or strange. And, and you know, the, the little slogan underneath the video will be, these are my humans, you know, <laughs> this is what I'm responsible for. Uh, I just think that's neat. That's funny. I haven't seen that one. Yeah, I, although I'm used to people with the same sort of sense of humor that's very like my human. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's funny. She won't be like, I told her she could put him in the, her in the right here on the couch yeah. but she doesn't I don't know she feels like that might be an imposition or something I think she so. might be worried about the animals too well that's true you know Greg might want to curl up on that's her true face. yeah she said <laughs> she doesn't want any of my cats to steal her breath which she didn't mean that literally she was joking clearly but yeah it was funny and I do have many cats so the- maybe one of them is a secretly evil baby breath eating cat <laughs>
Could happen. They will curl up on a baby's face. It's incredibly warm and inviting. <laughs> I know. I had cats and kids, but they never, you know, my my daughter now, she's got like eight cats. She loves cats. Mm-hmm. She's a total cat. That's person. more than me. That's crazy. You only have one, right? One cat? No, we have five. You have five cats? Yeah. Just Greg's the only one that, uh, you know, they're all indoor cats, and Greg's the one I walk, and uh, he comes to work with me, too. Also, because he's kind of like, he's a, he's young, and he's a lot of energy, so it kind of gives the other cats a break. <laughs> yeah. And I and I am a cat person, so I like having a cat around. Yeah. So I like bringing him to work. <laughs> That's right. My mom, at one point, had 28 cats. Really? Wow. Now we have I a think new she's winner. down to 14. New, we have a new winner. Ah, it's nothing. Tiziana's like, what are, what are you talking? What? I had four. Now I have two, unfortunately. Cats? Two passed, yeah. Uh, yes. Well, you know, two two's a good number. Two yeah. to three, maybe. Five is too many. Yes, absolutely. Andy, can you play back what she was saying? Yep. As, as Associated Press wrote an article about over 104,000 parents were out of work due to childcare issues because for those of us with young children in the daycare system, we are, I wrote a blog post about this. We are just like dodging diseases, like some kind of live action version of Frogger. You know, like it is like COVID. It's the souped up version of RSV that's just literally putting children, children in the hospital. The pediatric ward at Mission Hospital here in Buncombe County was completely full. There were no more beds because that's how many children were sick, either with COVID, the flu, or RSV. And it was the holiday season and cold season all happened at the same time. Y'all, I have a two-month-old. She will die. Yeah, right. right. So like we were, it was like, do you know what I'm saying? It was like the Hunger Games in my house. Do you know? Like, what are we dodging and you don't know? So So like anything at a moment's notice just gets shut down with me because I have to stay at home with two kids. You know, and so I haven't really been able to invest in this the way that I wanted to. So I can come in here when Aurora's in daycare, you know, for a couple of hours and then I got to get back to it. And so, so I'm like juggling the two kids. Aurora went back to daycare the first time yesterday. I picked up a shift at the gym working in the daycare to try and make money. I'm like doing all this stuff and I get home and I've got one hour and I'm like, okay, Lord, I'm going to finish reading this book. I'm at 40%. (laughs) You know, I've watched this, I'm going to write my question sounds. And the Lord was like, Tiziana. Shh. Yeah, take a break. Be still and know that I am God. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> well, and what he said was, I want you to practice just listening. Yeah, wow. And so the fact that you sat there yesterday and talked about how important it is to just listen and the project to listen, my spirit was just responding to that so completely because the Lord was like, your ears are more important than your mouth. And I need you to practice just listening. So when I came in yesterday, my spirit, my my goal was just to. So I wasn't was I wasn't working on like I wasn't paying attention to my mic work, because my my goal and what God had talked to me. About, I mean, I'm like sitting here and God's like, I have an idea, and I'm like, what? And He's like, why don't you take a nap for thirty minutes? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, you know, because also stay at home parents. So I'm doing the dishes. I'm doing the laundry. I'm doing the meal prep. I'm doing all the things. You know, I'm pumping milk at the same time. So that I can come do this. So my husband's got milk for the baby. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, and Lord's like. It's magic. <laughs> yeah. And God was like, I want you to take a nap. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, okay. okay. Well, and that's why we said like, what what will happen in here sometimes is we'll have those, we'll have a moment. Sometimes it feels dry and then sometimes it gets really warm. You'll feel the warmth in here. It feels like the spirit's moving and, mm-hmm. and things are happening. Mm-hmm. And I was watching that, and so we were just, and even Andy's recognizing the fact of what's going on. And we we're just like, "Yeah, we're not going to talk about mic work right now because it does yeah. not matter. I don't even care if the recording didn't work. What matters is what's happening between us, not yeah. the recording." And that was a blessing, by the way. Thank you. It encouraged me. If you only knew, I carried it through the night, and I even told my wife, "I said I have a lot to praise God for." You yeah, know? and it was cool. So thank you. Thanks oh. for a family, and you got one. I, it, 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 and that's just kind of what impressed me about your story because when mm. you have a relationship with God, that you know, you've been documenting, you know, so mm-hmm. many people, I think their conceptualization of God and is so built into their national identity or their this or that, mm. that they're not paying attention mm. to it, even if they are saved. And even though if, if it is, if it is producing fruit, you know, when you're lukewarm, you're not paying attention. Sure. And so the miracle of being on fire isn't just that you are telling everybody else what to do, you become intimately aware of like the miracles 
that are happening every day in your own life. And and so it was like just, you know, reading your book and then listening to your testimony last night that it touched my heart, you know, that I was like, what a, what a miracle that God has worked for this man to give him the deepest desires of his heart. It was just beautiful to, for me. So He's still doing it. Isn't that He's wonderful? still doing it, I'll tell you. Yeah. And you're about to have a little bit. <laughs> I'm telling you. Do you know what you're beautiful. having? A girl. I got yeah. two. Yeah. That's fun. That's yes. awesome. Challenging. I don't. I don't even know where to begin with that. <laughs> but it'll I be have a blessing. Twenty-eight kids. What did you say? I have twenty-eight kids. Headphones. Yeah, let's get oh, rolling. Yeah. Oh, we're rolling. Are we okay. rolling already? Yeah, we It's good fodder. It's good fodder for the end. All right. Well, let me turn on. Um, let me load up my pewter here and get up my notes. Are we going to do the roof first? You want? Well, what take, do you want to do? Well, first? I say let's take advantage let's, of the fact yeah. that your baby's chill. Yeah. So let's let you focus on what you've got going on. I think that's wise. And then if okay. you can't do the other because the baby is too much, then we'll still be able to get the second part. Sound okay. good? Yes, that sounds good. Which means I don't have to run this baby. She's got it under control. I'm going to open up my notes so that I have my notes. And then I have to actually like get on the interwebs and um, load up a version of the Bible because I forgot my Bible, gentlemen. No. I, have a, I have a green one in the room oh your my daughter's gracious. in. That was gifted to me. Andy has a Bible. Yeah, I know. I, I, Bible. I that uh, Karen gave it to you. Sent yep. it to you. I know that's such a she's what a powerhouse, man. I know, man. Right? Yeah. And you know what? You were right last night. The book I read in the sixth grade was No Compromise. It was the Keith Green story. No Compromise. Yeah, I got it wrong. And so when you said that, I was like, oh, maybe that was the name. But, you know, yeah. I read the book in the sixth grade. I'm obsessed with Keith Green. I have a whole playlist on Spotify of Keith Green songs. He's by far my most favorite. He is my, and, and you know, his life story too. You talk oh. about somebody who thought he was a washed up has-been by the time he was 17. Because, because his, he was in line to be the next big thing. And then Donny Osmond showed right. up and kicked him down. That's right. That's right. And so he was, you know, using drugs and just, you know, when he wrote the Prodigal Son suite, he was an unbeliever. Stop your mouth! That I can't listen to that any. Like it will I, be played at my funeral. Oh, I got goosebumps on my body. I don't know, Mike. I don't know if you're familiar with Keith Green as a Christian artist in the 1970s. I feel like um, Shane Claiborne. He wrote a book called mm -hmm. The Irresistible Revolution, mm -hmm. and he explained a little bit about Keith Green. That's probably the limited knowledge that I have. When he sings the Prodigal Son suite, that will be played at my funeral. Yeah, because. It describes all of us, really. But we we know what the parable, you know, of the prodigal son is. I call it, <laughs> I call it the parable of the ungrateful sons, because both of them are ungrateful, and the father is the one, you know, that's that's the one that's the loving one of all of them. And but my favorite part is when Keith says, um, "When I was near home, inside of the house, you know, I." He he's looking at his home. He's coming back from being in that far land and just eating the husks, you know, of what the sows were eating. Oh you know? my gosh. And he sees the home. And then his father looks out and he sees him and it says, I'm gonna cry. I gotta, I gotta calm I'm, down. I'm he says, he says, and he ran. Mm -hmm. And he fell on my neck and he kissed me. He and, and when Keith Green sings that, like when he's like, my son's alive, like he just like the dad, like singing He was that. an unbeliever when he wrote that song. That is insane. And then me. he gets radically saved. Yeah. And then the song meaning he gets it. Like it's, it's one of the most powerful testimonies. My son was dead. It's, oh my gosh. Yes. Uh, that one in the Easter song, that, that one gets me. Hear the bells ringing, the singing that you can be born again. again. But the way the music is, con oh, is yeah. constructed as well. And like when, like when all the, like he first sings, that's just him and the piano. He was an incredible pianist. We always do this. I know, man. It's just, we just, we're spiraling out into we God knows But where. we connect to music though, you and I. Oh yeah. I was about we to stop each other you guys. We can't. Yeah, I was like, Andy's I was like, like this is interesting. I'm going to let it roll for rain a minute. It in. But, yeah. Rain right, it in. Rain it in. We'll right. talk about it some other day. Yeah. Maybe we'll do a thing about Keith Green. We should. And then play his music. Yeah. Oh, golly gracious. You know song for Josiah? That song. And then he died. I know. I can't. I was, it was like <laughs> almost prophetic, you know? And when he sings that, there's, oh, I got goosebumps. When he says that one thing, he's like, um, for a sister, God gave you, me your mother. mother. Yeah, like Dylan and I talk about that a lot. Like, oh, my son, I am only your brother. Yes. Ugh. Yeah. For a sister, God gave me your mother. Yeah. But there was a mother so, so long, long ago. ago. And here's me doing just that. Yeah, get it, get it, get it. Yeah. <laughs> like I, the father. I will say this. Yeah. I wrote a song. I'll, I wrote it. I put it on YouTube. I wrote a song for my daughter, a, 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 a lullaby, because I was like, how do I, especially in like the, the tumultuous 
social and racial atmosphere of mm-hmm. 2020 and 2021. How do I write a, a lullaby? How do I write a song for my daughter that encapsulates the complicated um, journey that she is destined to have, despite her whiteness, you know, and how much more complicated it is for her cohorts of color, you know, like, because we have these stories where we're like, oh, if you just do the right thing, then everything good's going to happen for you. <laughs> how does that work out for our, our children of color? Uh, you know, it's, you, know it's, you can have a kid of color doing absolutely everything right, and they're still going to get treated differently. They're still going to have to struggle with, you know, um, being looked at differently in the public school system. There's still, I mean, all this other stuff. So I wanted to write a song and then there's this line in there where I'm like, at the very end where I'm like, you know, some days will feel good and some days will feel hard. But one thing I know for sure is you can trust the heart of God and that Mm. love will find you no matter where you are. Oh, I love it. If you'll choose life. When he says, I'm sorry, Andy, I'm paying for this. So he says this, (laughs) listen, Father, I've sinned, heaven's ashamed. I'm no longer worthy to wear your name. Mm-hmm. I've learned that my home is right where you are. Mm-hmm. Oh, Father, please take me home. Oh. Then he goes, bring the best yes! robe. Yeah, put it on my son. Get a ring, put oh it on his finger. Gosh, he yes. kissed him. You know, oh, it's, it's like, so great. You got to listen to it. <laughs> Michael. <laughs> No idea what's going on. You're giving me a listening uh, list for the day. I know. We're just like, yeah. But uh, yeah, Keith Green. Keith Green. Keith Green, man. All right. Well, anyhow, folks. We're good. Uh, Yeah, just- uh, Welcome back. Do that again when I'm not like talking to you, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Sorry. 